Hello, 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 sound gang. It's Alfred Faber back once again to bring you the most talented of talented artists and to ask them, hey, how do you work with sight and sound? It's been a while since I dropped the first two episodes. Uh, I was on holiday in Korea and England, took a bit of a break, but now I'm back in Sydney, back on that grind, and it is officially time to get this bread. For this episode... I had the pleasure of talking to a super cool dude, Andy Wright. Andy Wright works at Soundfirm, the audio post-production house next to Fox Studios in Sydney. Soundfirm is Australia's largest independent post-production house, with facilities in Sydney, Melbourne and Beijing. In his time there, Andy has worked on many of the biggest films produced in Australia. Rabbit Proof Fence, Mad Max... Peter Rabbit, and in 2017, he was awarded an Oscar for sound mixing for his work on Hacksaw Ridge. He's done ADR recording, mixing, sound supervising, and had a lot of knowledge bombs to drop about the Australian industry. It was a most enlightening experience. Andy Wright, everyone. Enjoy. So, um, Andy, could you give me like a brief description about how you got into sound as a career? Sure. Well, um, it's a, it's a slightly, not too long a tale, but I went to university, uh, in 1999 and studied, I started to study archeology span at Sydney uni and hated it and got a job at the local cinema, just, you know, selling tickets, cleaning up, and then got into the projection room there and started to learn how to project 35 mil film for exhibition at the Greater Union Cinema or whatever it was. Um, and then uh, my auntie, who works with a company at Fox Studios called Sound Firm, called me and said, look, we've heard you've been doing this. We need someone to come in as a junior and learn how to project film rushes and do uh, sound rushes for uh, the daily screenings that... Um, that film producers and directors look at uh, each day after as they shoot a picture. Um, and so I went into Sound Firm and started to learn that stuff, learned how to project 35mm film, learned how to do 35mm mag transfers from, from DAT audio tapes and um, quarter-inch tapes and two-inch tape transfers and all that kind of tape stuff, um, even though digital was around in uh, 1999 then. You know, my career started in tape at, at, at Sound Firm and uh, from there got into ADR recording, uh, mix assisting and Foley recording and then, uh, you know, obviously an interest in sound editing, dialogue editing and, and mixing as well. Cool. So you had a pretty fortuitous entry, I guess, because I've heard that uh, it's difficult to come into it as an assistant these days. Yeah, you know? uh, I was very lucky, firstly, that I had, I guess, a connection through my auntie who worked with Sound Firm for uh, about 20, 25 years. Uh, she was in ma- uh, in the management department and, and the, the running of the show, the facility kind of management. Um, but very fortunate that, you know, she, she asked me to come and kind of try out for this kind of thing. And then, yeah, coming in at a time when there still were those backroom assistant roles, um, learning the old school techniques and then applying them to the new kind of digital age. Uh, very fortuitous to be able to have learned under people like Roger Savage, Ian McLaughlin, um, Steve Burgess, Michael Thompson, um, uh, the, the guys, the mixes at Sound Firm, and, um, and, and, and then apply those techniques into what they were doing with ADR and Foley and mixing. Was it difficult to make the transition from... Uh, a more analog world to 
Pro Tools based without uh, formal training? No, it wasn't because it was easier. All of the things you had to do in the in the analog world took a lot longer or they were things that had to be checked more. Um, I remember a specific example on Moulin Rouge. We were doing a temp dub and uh, we had to transfer the whole dub off the two-inch tapes to 35mm mag for six-track um, playback in the States against the film. And uh, every time we had a dropout or a click or a pop on that mag transfer, we had to go back and do it again. So, um, and check it again. And uh, the checking process was in a different building. So it was like, do the transfer, take it to the other building, check it against the print, uh, find the error, go back, do the transfer again, take it back to the other building, check it against the print. If it was clean, great. If it was another error, you had to go back and do it again. So it was always a a longer process. Whereas with the digital files, if there was an error where you could just, you know, destructively drop in on the, on the, on the digital file, check the drop-ins work that there was no clicks and pops and things like that. And then the files were fine. So uh, it was a lot quicker and a lot easier in the digital world. So having learned the struggles of the analog processes and then applying them to the digital world, it made it a lot quicker and easier. So I guess you were kind of thrust into the sound for film world, but was there anything that uh, led you to pursue a career in sound in screen media as opposed to just sound engineering? No, look, not really. I think the the, the biggest influence was working at Sound Firm. Um, their yeah whole business model was feature film and and long form television um they didn't do we did do some cinema commercials but we weren't we weren't a big advertising you know advertising clients weren't a big uh, client of ours um even you know serial television was kind of few and far between it was mostly the 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 tv movies and the australian and american feature films that that came our way uh and later on the chinese feature films that roger savage was quite um good at getting uh the chinese clients to come to sydney and melbourne to produce their their post on their films but um no i I was always interested in film i was one of those kids who watched you know indiana jones and star wars and over and over and over again predator top gun you know all those um big sound films um and i just had a love for for movies um you know working at the working at the cinema after i'd left uni i was always engaged in the storytelling side of things and and not so much engaged in you know how the sounds were uh, the, were processed and i mean i enjoyed music but i was never a big kind of music listener um or or, or you know I, I played guitar and drums and things but i was never into recording myself and 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 finding out how to make them sound the best as possible i was always more interested in the feature film storylines and then how the sound uh came to you know be and and create and evolve around those storylines do you remember any film in particular that had a big impact on you? Oh, I mean, as a kid, um, as a kid, and, and everybody says this this answer. You know, those those Star Wars films were just incredible. Um, the way that sound was used really opened up, I think, people's worlds and imagination as to what can be. Uh, available and, and you know what sound can bring to story and then coming into the world of actually creating that and and starting to understand how things are done and and, and what techniques and um what abilities there are for sound to um you know create these these storylines 
um, you know, some of those Chinese films really started to blow my mind as well. Um, very fortunate to work on uh, Yang Yimou's Hero and the House of Flying Daggers and, and the way that the sound really just encompassed the story and, and, and added to the characters and it was just a massive eye-opener for me. Do you notice anything different about the way Chinese filmmakers use sound or seek to use sound? They're a lot more... Um, open to being a little bit different um i mean first of all they dub everything uh and that's for a couple of reasons sometimes they use hong kong based actors who are more in the cantonese speaking world and their film market is is huge in the mandarin speaking world so it's kind of like an australian playing an american sometimes they might not get the accent 100 percent right so they dub everything so that was something new for me um especially my background uh, with sound film started in adr recording uh, getting creatively started with adr recording so to understand that they just go and loop the whole show um it was pretty mind-boggling to me and then it then also opens up a whole bunch of things with foley and sound editing that everything is recreated then hardly anything from location apart from some of the big army sequences or when you've got 10,000 soldiers running in some of those shots um you know everything is recreated uh in, including the voices so it really was um you know the, the way that they approached um from the ground up the sound that 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 was a bit different but otherwise you know it's still traditional processes music for emotion um making sure the dialogue is clear and connecting to the audience um characterization is all is all there and and then sound effects you know really bring the impact uh to to the story and to the to the viewers about your career as an ADR recordist, what do you think makes a good ADR recordist? ADR is all about the actor. Um, you can have the best mics, the best room, the best kit. You can be as fast as lightning. And if the actor isn't in, in the right place, the ADR will never work. So in my opinion, ADR is all about making the actor feel comfortable, um, giving them time to get into the character, giving them the ability to make them feel comfortable. And, and that comes down to things like, you know, making sure that they're in a, in a space that they like. Um, they've got what they need around them in terms of scripts and, and, and reference material, whether it's the, the picture of, from the edit or it's um, you know, various other takes or voice samples they need to listen to. Um, and then it's just about making them feel comfortable and able to get back in character and then bring to the the, the film what the director wants. So, um, you know, you've got to be able to listen. You've got to be able to deal with kind of quick requests. Um, and that, that helps if you've got support. Uh, but then it's, it, it is about, you know, making sure that there's clear communication between the director and the actor. The actor is comfortable and that you're able to um, facilitate technically whatever anybody asks you in terms of playbacks, recording styles, um, and, and, and dealing, yeah, dealing with, with requests that, you know, even if it's, can they get a coffee or, or something like that, you know, making sure that these things happen quickly and, you know, communication is done swiftly and easily. Over the years that you've done ADR, is there... I mean, you kind of answered it, but is there anything that you learned? Well, uh, the, probably the biggest thing in in the, the biggest thing for me, then stepping into a mixer's role, I learned um, I learned what was better sounding in an ADR 
situation. So what I mean by that is that um, a lot of times ADR is difficult to tell how loud or soft projection levels should be, um, how much energy should be given to the ADR. Sometimes when things are recorded, um, you kind of feel like it might be enough when you're just sitting there in the ADR studio and then you get into the mix room and, and you instantly hear that, oh, it's not as projected as maybe it, it should have been or, um, you know, the pitch is different to the original and it's not quite matching the lips of, of what's going on. So or it's not sitting in sitting in the, in, the, in the mouth. So I think the biggest thing I learned from my ADR recording was how then to apply it to a mixing point of view and then take it back into the studio with the mixer's hat on and be able to politely um, and, and in a way have the actors perform it in a way that makes them comfortable they're doing it right and technically it is coming right because you know sometimes you've got to ask the actors to give a little bit more and they feel like they're giving enough and that's tricky to then be able to explain to them from a technical point of view it's always better if you give a bit more because it sits in the in the screen it sits in the mouth a little bit bit better when you get into the mix room you bring in the music you bring in the sound effects you bring in the foley um, and uh, things kind of work better so I think um, having the experience of stepping into the mix room and stepping back into the ADR room was probably the biggest, you know, thing I learned from that time. So, um, how often are the directors there with you? Yeah, I mean, this time, uh, in this day and age, they don't have to be there, but they're definitely from a feature film point of view, they're always involved. Whether they're sitting in a studio in LA or London or New York with the actors in Sydney and doing a, a connection over the internet. Um, or they come into the studio or um, vice versa. You're in the studio with the director in Sydney and the actors in LA or wherever. So um, on a feature film, it's almost 100% collaboration in that respect. Um, you know, we've had instances on films where the director's in LA, the actor's in London and we're listening in Sydney. So it becomes a kind of a, 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 a mix-up of time zones, which can be tricky. Yeah. And most of the time, the director and the actor will get the time zone right and you'll be the one sitting at 4 a.m. In, in the morning. Um, but that's fine, you know. You, you want to make sure things are sounding right and, um, and the communication of what's needed is happening. So... Um, yeah, directors 100% feature film. Uh, television, it drops off a lot more. I think it comes down to availability for directors, um, involvement of directors. A lot of the time, directors are finished by the time we're in sound post on television. So, um, it's yeah, it's a little bit more up and down. Moving on to one of the most interesting films you've worked on. On a film of the scale of Hacksaw Ridge, uh, what did your role as sound supervisor kind of entail exactly? Yeah, well... Um, uh, myself uh, was hired as the sound supervisor and Robert McKenzie hired as the um, sound designer and supervising sound effects editor. Um, so Rob and I decided early on to kind of split it down the middle of myself taking care of the dialogue and Rob taking care of the sound effects. Um, but we co-shared the Foley engagement. So Rob went away with um, his sound effects crew and designed, you know, all the military sounds, all the domestic sounds, all the ambient sounds for the environments around. And then I went away with our dialogue crew, uh, obviously um, assessed the location sound recordings, which were excellently done by Peter Grace and his crew. But then also um, taking on board Mel Gibson's uh, intent with the dialogue to bring more energy to it. So uh, Mel is someone having an acting background as well as being a fabulous director. He understands the processes of ADR very well and he wanted to do a lot of ADR in order to bring the intensity of the battles 
up a step, um, which also allowed then Rob and his crew to bring the battle sounds, you know, up a step as well. So, um, you know, there was a big process of of collaboration with Mel on on what he wanted to replace and change, um, and then obviously going through doing a lot of the technical assessment for ADR, um, and then figuring out how to bring all the loop group and the backgrounds um, d- dialogue sounds. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of people being killed and shot and we're in a battle. So going through and, 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 you know, meticulously marking when we need someone to be saying something and what they would be saying uh, and then going through and recording it. Um, we were very fortunate to have some fabulous loop group actors come in and we put them through the ringer for a couple of days uh, in both Japanese and um, English. So uh, a big task in that respect then um, obviously Rob and I stepping to the mixer's chair with Kevin O'Connell. So Kevin's role was to mix the dialogue and the music. My role then was mixing uh, all of the background atmosphere and ambient sounds and the foley and Rob took care of the uh, sound effects. So um, that was a little bit of a crossover because I would be able to sit next to Kevin while he was mixing the dialogue and if he ever had a question about the dialogue or which ADR take we were going to use or, you know, uh, where should we be placing this background sound effect or this this guy dying, his scream, he could always just turn to me and, and you know, seek my advice on it while I was sitting there mixing the Foley. Um, and then we could also, you know, turn to Rob and ask his, him questions about how the effects would work against, you know, the dialogue and the, and the music and um it was good a very very solid collaborative effort in terms of um being able to hear and and decipher what each person was taking on board and then be able to put them together um you know in a very collaborative way so when mixing uh, a real a war scene with so much going on uh how do you choose what to include and exclude and not kind of fatigue the audience yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a hard question to answer but i think you know we had a we had a good amount of time during the mix to on on this film to um to really sculpt it um in the first battle sequence on Hacksaw Ridge, we were given the opportunity of using no music. So there were no, no scored music planned. So we were able to sit down pretty early on and, 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 and place and sculpt things knowing that we wouldn't have to re, kind of reshape it against how the music was working. So, um, you know, that definitely gave Rob a lot of scope to get things sounding quite good early on um, and then refine it as, as the cut kind of got um, you know the cut got more refined um, you know thankfully John Gilbert the picture editor didn't recut the battle sequences a lot he 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 and Mel were quite good at getting a cut done early on and then just making very small adjustments to it not making sweeping changes and things so you know that helped us because we didn't have to kind of reinvent the wheel from from each different uh, version of the film we just had to kind of update and manipulate things to work better with the way the cut had slightly changed um and then you know sitting down in the mix and really just concentrating on the detail of each shot and then um seeing how it would flow so um you know kevin has many many years experience you know working in this style of film um rob and i have had many years of experience working together in this kind of collaborative way so um kevin being so open to our ideas and us being quite very open to kevin's ideas it was really um just an easy process of going through each kind of shot and each kind of sound and orchestrating it to be you know, placed in its particular place each time. So the attention to detail really, I think, is the answer. Um, 
to make sure that we're not just throwing the, everything at, uh, you know, turning everything up to 11 and, and playing it loud. We're hitting the audience at the right time with the right sound and the right things. And, and not always is it a bomb or explosion. It's sometimes it's a bullet whiz. Sometimes it's a, it's a scream. Sometimes it's a footstep. Sometimes it's a, a bag move or a gun rattle. You know, it's just different levels of intensity that um, fills the space at, at each time, but they're not always at the same intensity. I heard in an interview that uh, although you mixed in Dolby Atmos, uh, you only introduced the Atmos for the war scene. And for the first part of the film, it was 5-1. Or yeah, well, a seven one, but seven one. That's yep. right. We um we we'd always planned to mix an Atmos, and um you know from a sound effects point of view, we did that quite early on. We set up Rob's edit room in eleven point one, so he could from an edit stage really be working in that Atmos um, scope. Then when we mixed the film, we mixed in seven one um, uh, natively at both sound firm Sydney and Sony in LA. And um, when we'd finished the mix and everyone signed off, Rob and I stepped up and did the Atmos mix, which was a week um, at Sony, pretty much just you know changing the sound effects to um, encompass the the object movement and stuff and stuff that Rob had already done in his edit room and then we placed a few other things uh, as we saw fit around it but yeah we kind of decided as a stylistic point of view that um, the whole first half of the movie the domestic half of the film as we call it was was just in its normal 7-1 kind of scope with maybe a few atmospheric things changed but very little then you know in that same style um uh well in the style of 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 previous films where they get to a certain point of of explosion or they get to a certain change in the in the style of the movie that that's when we decided to broaden out to atmos and yeah pretty much when those first that first battle happens that's when the change you know takes over were there any other kind of techniques you used to sonically distinguish that domestic half of the film to the wartime well i mean the probably the most obvious one is the scope of the the the, the ambient sounds um you know we wanted america to sound um full of life uh full of you know birds and, and activity people in the street and, and things like that so there was always a lot of um you know a pleasant life type of sounds during during the um even the training camps and things there's always people shouting off in the distance and there's there's birds and activity around and then once we get to okinawa um you know it's death the place has been bombed thousands of bombs have been dropped on this place i mean i think um the statistic after the war is that there were you know the 15 percent of the males between the ages of 15 and 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 40 what were a were alive and the other 85% were all killed. So um, the place was just destroyed completely. So there was no life, um, just wind, just fire, no insects. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the problems we had with the location shoot was that it was shot in an Australian summer just on the outskirts of Sydney. So there's, there's a few insects and there's a few bugs around that we need to, you know, either get rid of in the location sound or replace with ADR. So we really wanted it to be a, a dead sounding environment. Um, so that's probably the, the, the biggest technique. I mean, obviously, um, 
with the 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 battle sequences they're all quite huge and 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 full-on so um you know that's a a big change and and it really just follows the way that the picture was designed you know um america and and um uh, virginia look quite beautiful and and full of life and full of color and then you know once they're in okinawa it's quite dark and 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 gray and and brown and and all that so trying to follow the way that the the picture has been designed as well i can't remember the exact time frame but if hacksaw ridge was released in 2016 Mm. we were you were working on it in 2016 yeah so So they yeah had had dolby atmos only recently kind of been developed yeah um i seem to remember the first wasn't the first film gravity that used it I think Gravity was like the... I don't know if it was the first film, um, mm. but Gravity was definitely one of the uh, most exciting films to use the format. Mm. Um, and I think that was because of the way that, that that film was designed from a sound point of view. You know, you mm. only heard sound went through the vibration mm. of touching something. Um, you know, I, I, I actually uh, only got to hear a little bit of Gravity in Atmos. And um, I think one of the big things for Gravity was the way that they mixed the music because they really took advantage of that that space Mm. um very cleverly so um yeah 2016 um look i know that sound for melbourne had built their atmos room uh the year before um i you know we'd been mixing some chinese films in atmos at sound for melbourne so um i think hacksaw just was just the right time to take advantage of that you know technology so it wasn't too much of a a shock or a learning curve to come into Atmos? Had you well, guys had much experience? Yeah, I hadn't personally. Rob had. He'd mixed a film um, before Hacksaw Ridge called Lion that he'd mixed in Atmos. Oh, right. Um, so, and he'd mixed, I think he'd mixed a Chinese film in Atmos as well in in, in South for Melbourne. Um, but it, it it's it's once you get around the idea of how the objects work it's it's pretty straightforward in terms of um figuring out how to use it um yeah i you know what again once you kind of understand it and you're able to play with it i think reading about it is could be tricky but once you're able to sit there with it in front of you and 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 you know play with the panning of the objects and that kind of thing it it makes a lot of sense you know straight away um it's a fabulous format it's an absolutely fabulous format uh, Mel Gibson, having come from an acting background, uh, is he very conscious about sound and the technical aspect? Is he a good director to work with in that sense? Amazing director to work with in, in that sense and in all senses. I mean, I, I'm not sure about on set, but, um, you know, all the actors that came in for ADR, you could tell that they were lifting their game for him. You know, they respected him. They wanted to give the best that they could for him and um you know we were the same uh he's he's an amazing storyteller a master storyteller um he 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 wants everything to be real to him you know he doesn't he doesn't want things to to um not feel as if it it wasn't real in terms of what's happening to the drama on screen so um you know he's very he can be a very hands-off director you know um he was allowing rob a lot of space to do what he needed to do and then, you know, Rob would send things for him to preview with John Gilbert in the picture edit. And then we'd get feedback. So, but it wasn't like he sat there with Rob 
every day to kind of um, you know scope the sound but very hands-on with the ADR sessions you know we we learned pretty early on that if Mel wasn't there the ADR didn't work you know he needed to be there he had a great um, working ethic in terms of sitting there and choosing takes um, and, and and very very much all of the takes that he chose during the ADR session pretty much 90% of them is what ended up in the film so he was very clear on what he wanted he was um, he was very uh, good at, at describing and, and, and pushing his actors to give what he needed. Um, and he was always uh, always open to ideas, always open to listen to things we wanted to try. And, um, you know, very good at, at directing us in a, in, a, in, a, in a collaborative way to get what he wanted. You know, he wouldn't, he was not a person to just go, oh, no, turn that up, turn that down, turn that. He would be you know, what do you guys think about, you know, making that guy scream a little bit louder or, you know, maybe we could turn the heat up on the flamethrower or something like that. He was, he was excellent in, you know, being a part of the process, not just demanding things um, as some people can. And so is that what you like in a director as opposed to someone who is, knows exactly what they want and will tell you? Well, no, I think it's great when they know what they want and, and Mel definitely knows what he wants, but there's a way to go about it. Um, and you know it can it can be a place sometimes when um, you can be there and more in a mixing point of view um, you can be there and things are sounding good and uh, you know directors or producers or writers or composers or whoever whoever is there can come in and and uh, and, and throw a curveball in there because of um, you know something that they feel isn't working um, and and then just demand that that is what needs to happen and you know that that that's fine it's their movie or it's it's you know it's it's the it's that process that you've got to take on board but it's not um you know there's definitely ways to go about it in those environments you know where you can you can you try and be at least a little bit a little bit more and nice is the wrong word but polite and and you know diplomatic Mm. yeah Mm. so um in an interview uh i saw you and rob talking about uh how you were trying to make the sounds of war into the music and part of this like soundtrack and the score um have you ever had to do this on any other films uh i think um and i could be going the wrong way about this but do you do you mean that um the the battle scenes in Hacksaw had to be kind of orchestrated. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, everything is orchestrated with sound effects. You know, it's um, and sound design. It's 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 very little is just thrown in for no reason. Um, you you design things from the ground up, but then you 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 place them into places where they they make the story feel better. Um, if things don't work, get rid of them because they're not they're not helping the story they're not helping helping the flow of the movie um but you know hacksaw and that first battle sequence it was just such a great opportunity to to orchestrate the sound like you would instruments um but not in the sense of um you know making well definitely making things work in terms of how they sound together uh but you know you're not you're not kind of writing the music as such as you would like write the music on a piece of paper as you know composers would do we're sitting there sculpting it uh, as an organic process um, so you know that's kind of what we do on every film I think Hacksaw for that first battle scene it was just such um, an amazing opportunity to really go to town 
on the detail and the ferocity of it um, because there was no um, there was nothing to mask uh, there was no music to mask the the detail um, but yeah you're always you're always kind of using each film and each 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 scene um, orchestrating the sound to to make the, the story work the best that it can so um it might not be as obvious as some of those scenes in Hacksaw Ridge, but it's always kind of the way that it's developing. And one of the documentaries you worked on, which I absolutely love, which is Deep Sea Challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your role on that? Yeah, I was the dialogue editor. Right. Um, Deep Sea Challenge was a, a very interesting uh, film to work on. Unfortunately, I never got to meet James Cameron. Um I, I, I'm not sure any of the sound crew actually got to meet James Cameron, unfortunately. Uh, Chris Goods uh, was the supervising sound editor out of Melbourne. Um, and he and Steve Burgess, who was another editor from, from Melbourne, were uh, creating the sound for the film. My role as dialogue editor obviously was to go through and clean up as much of the crappy location sound that was recorded. Um, and then a big part of it was that James uh, Cameron had to ADR all of the or most of his lines down in the um in the challenger deep uh, in the in the um in the submarine um because when you're down that deep sometimes you obviously you didn't have a sound recordist with him and no one could monitor the track and it, it was discovered that a lot of the track was unusable so luckily enough james has an adr studio in his house so he just went through and recorded it all himself he was very good at it um his sync was excellent his performance was great and um, we just, you know, fit it to sync, matched it into the space uh, of the sub and um, and mixed it into the film. Yeah. Was there any kind of uh, emotions you were trying to convey with the yeah, dialogue um, in that film? It's, it's, I mean, I think the, the, the emotion is the connection to the audience. You know, dialogue is, is the thing really that connects the audience to what's going on. You know, it's telling... You know, obviously you can see it, but it's it's telling you the details of the of the plot and and the action that's happening, especially in a documentary about a guy going to the bottom of the ocean. You know, they they've got to hear the detail that's 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 in there, and they've got to understand the risks and things, and that's all. You know, that's all from the connection they have with the dialogue. So, uh, the you know maybe not emotion, but connection, clarity was is just like so vital in these things. If the audience, I don't understand what's being said, they're out. They they're out of the movie instantly, and that could be the difference between someone really enjoying a movie and somebody hating a film. So, um, you know, sonically, uh, I actually didn't get to hear what Chris and Steve finished up with, um, but um, you know, it was a great project to be a part of, and uh, and, and you know, amazing story, really. So cool. I love that. So, um, something I kind of, I've been wrapping every interview with is, uh, I've heard from a lot of people in sound that the Australian industry is struggling at the moment, especially kind of sound post. Um, is it important to you to try and support that? And how do you do that? Yeah, it's a difficult question. Um, Australian the Australian film industry really is a roller coaster ride, and and sound post and post production um, in in general is even more rocky. Um, I think people have to be and producers have to be responsible with the budgets they're putting out. Um, anecdotally, I've heard that budgets have gone up 
in, in overall in Australian films, but that sound budgets have remained the same. Um, I know for a fact that, you know, uh, wages and sound editorial wages have stayed stagnant pretty much for 15 years. Um, you know, the government support is, is, is without it, we would be lost. And they've got some great schemes, you know, for uh, bringing overseas clients and overseas productions to Australia. And that's where I see as, um, something that's important to me is to try and facilitate the medium budget American, British, Chinese films to come to Australia for post-production because they get great incentives on um, on post-production offsets, um, 30% back, 40% back in some cases on what they spend in Australia. Um, they've got, you know, at the moment, 30 cents in the dollar coming from the States that they save and every dollar they spend from the exchange rate. So, you know, their their um, million dollar post-production or $2 million post-production budgets can be stretched to $2.5 million. Um, um, they're getting a level of service that's on par with uh, with the Hollywood system. Um, so, I think it's it's... It's vital that we try and lure a lot of those medium-sized American films to Australia for post-production. A lot of them come out for shooting. You know, obviously, they've had some big films shoot here over the last 10, 15 years with Star Wars, Matrix, um, Wolverines, and, and, and those types of films. Um, you know, Peter Rabbit has been a great film to work on. They shoot here and post here. So, um, you know, that's what we want to bring is those medium-sized films. I mean, Peter Rabbit is a, is a massive film, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a good size, medium-sized budget. It's not a $100 million Marvel movie. Those medium-sized budgets come to Australia, use the facilities for... Um, production and post um, and get an outstanding product at a cheaper rate really a huge thanks to Jamika Blackman for editing this episode she did a bloody fabulous job if you've liked the show in so far please go leave a review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on it apparently does make a difference Thanks to Jordan S. Benjamin for taking stills and Jean-David Legoulon for the intro and outro music. To keep updated on new info, go like the podcast on Facebook or Instagram. Search Sound Perspective Podcast. Or for more info and contact options, go to www.soundperspectivepodcast.com. Send me an email. Tell me your thoughts, your feelings, your deepest, darkest secrets. I want to hear it all. I'm Alfred Faber. Thanks so much for joining me again.